Father, give our weary bodies strength today. We are weary in many ways because of the travails of this life and the sin that invades this world and has invaded our very bodies. But there are also days like this when just the natural course of events conspire to take away what strength we might have. So I pray that we would find extra strength today in the Lord and in in the work of the Spirit in us. Give me, Father, strength in my voice and in my clarity of thought to represent honestly and properly what you have put in your word. And give others strength to listen and to be attentive and to, to find meaning and application in what you teach through your word. And let us do all these things, Father, as our spiritual service of worship. And let it be, Father, something you can use in each of us to grow us into the likeness of Christ. We pray this earnestly in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 41. Have you all heard the phrase, the man? That's the phrase you'll hear in the culture to describe the boss, the guy in charge, the man. I'm working for the man. The man's out to get me, whatever the phrase may be. Well, at this point in our story of Joseph, Joseph has officially become the man. He is second in command of all Egypt, according to what we read last time. This makes him, by the way, second in command of all the world, practically speaking, because Egypt was easily the most powerful nation on earth in this day. And although Pharaoh is technically more powerful than Joseph, the Pharaoh last week delegated all day-to-day operational power and control to Joseph within the kingdom. So nothing in Egypt can happen without Joseph's approval or involvement. The monarch then, the Pharaoh, has essentially reduced himself to a figurehead monarch and placed Joseph in the foreground of authority and rule in the nation. That's a remarkable place for Joseph to be when you consider that he has spent the last 13 years in slavery and in prison, and in one fell swoop he is now the second most powerful man on earth. There's no way to explain that except that God has the capacity to move us that far, that fast, when it suits his purpose. We also noted how this rise to power for Joseph is a wonderful picture of Jesus and of Jesus ruling, but ruling, we notice, under the authority of the Father. That there is the Father and then the Son who obeys the Father. We hear this in many places in Scripture, but just one quickly. Out of Psalms, Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. The psalmist says, What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands, and have put all things under his feet. Psalm 8 reminds us of the dominion of rule that God first gave Adam originally in the garden, but this psalm also alludes to the rule that the Father assigns the Son as the new Adam who rules over creation. So Joseph's rise to power is a result of God's promise The promise he specifically is honoring here is the promise to deliver Joseph the birthright. That's really what we're seeing happen in this part of the story. When God makes a promise, folks, he delivers. And in this case, he delivers big time. The birthright holder, if you remember, in any family, is entitled to a double portion of the family's inheritance, which has yet to be given to Joseph. We have yet to see that take place. But... The birthright holder also is entitled to become the ruler over the family. They are the new patriarch in the line of patriarchs, if you will. And according to the dreams that God gave Joseph earlier, he said Joseph would have the power to rule over not only his brothers, but also over his parents. 
And now you're seeing how the Lord intends to accomplish that very thing. Because remember, in the culture, it's one thing to have the birthright and to be the ruler over, the, over your brothers, but it's a totally different thing to say that birthright privilege will give you the chance to rule over your very own father. That never happens in the culture. But it was to happen to Joseph. And now you see, in the way Joseph has reached this point of power, how he will be able to command authority even over his father. So he's become a powerful ruler, but last week we also learned he's become a husband and a member of the royal household through that marriage. He is officially now an Egyptian citizen. That becomes important later when we look at how the birthright is transferred. This place, Egypt, is to become Joseph's home for the rest of his life. And this will be where he raises his family as well. That's the next thing we learn. Verse 47 of chapter 41, we learn about the beginning of the famine and his family to come. Verse 47. During the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. And so he gathered all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Thus, Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. Well, immediately Joseph begins to enact the plan that he told Pharaoh a wise man should enact. And you can assume some of the things that Joseph must have been doing during these seven years of plenty. We don't hear about them here, but it's only natural to assume what he must have done. And he's using the skills that he obtained during those 13 years that he was captive in the land. First, you can imagine he must have spent his time organizing and planning and preparing for all of the storage that had to take place. He mentioned to Pharaoh the the need for a taxation system. So he must have implemented some kind of taxation system to the tune of 20%. And then he had to organize and prepare a way to collect and to store all that grain. He had to form armies of men to count it and to build the storehouses to hold it, and then to transport it, and then to guard it once it was in the storehouses. And then, we're told, after seven years, the production of the land is so abundant, so fruitful, he just stops counting after a while. Wouldn't you love to have that kind of money or resource at your disposal? So much, you don't bother counting it anymore. It's described here like a sea of sand in terms of the grain. Now, as you think about all that God is doing in these seven years and with the effectiveness of his plan playing out in this way, you have to remember why it's happening. Why is there such an abundance? Why is there such an excess coming into the land? The purpose, God told us, was to prepare Egypt and the world for a coming famine that was going to be terribly severe. In fact, without this abundance, the famine that would have followed or is to follow would wipe out Egypt and many other nations. So this provision is a means of protecting Egypt in the face of that coming famine. But that answer just begs a bigger question, doesn't it? Why does God create a famine and then provide for an abundance in advance of the famine in order to protect the people from the famine? Why not just not create the famine? Then you wouldn't need all this other stuff. It's like asking someone to dig a hole in the ground only to then ask them to fill it right back up. The answer to why is centered on God's work in Israel. In fact, a safe answer to almost any question in the Bible is because of Israel. The Lord is working a plan here. He's working it through Joseph. And the plan is intended to bring pressure on Jacob and Jacob's family. And through that pressure, 
the family of Israel will be forced to move into Egypt, which is what God promised to Abraham would happen in his family's day, in Jacob's day. Furthermore, by these circumstances, Jacob's family will be forced to reconcile with Joseph. So the famine has two intentions, two purposes. Drive Israel into Egypt and force Jacob's sons to reconcile with Joseph. And you're going to watch that story closely with me as the story continues. So while Joseph is building up storehouses full of grain in Egypt, we said already he starts a family at the same time. Look at verses 50 through 52. Now before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. He named the second Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So Joseph's wife bears him two sons. The first son is called Manasseh. It's a Hebrew name, so he's naming his children Hebrew names, and the name means literally forgetting. As Joseph says, it's because the Lord has made him to forget all his suffering as he's experienced it. Furthermore, Joseph says he's not only forgotten his suffering, he's also forgotten his father's household. Now, that's an interesting comment. That would explain why Joseph hasn't taken any opportunity, now that he's reached this position of power, to seek after Jacob and his brothers, to go back to the family, to say anything to them about his circumstances. And now that he has reached this place of power, you might have expected that, and lesser men may have even gone to the step of seeking revenge from those same people. But Joseph, it appears, is content to let it go. More than let it go, to forgive the injury that his family did. And that's the way you have to understand his meaning when he says forget. When he says forget here, in context, it's clearly indicating he has forgiven. He has released the hurt. He has released the offense that was done against him by those family members. And the kindness of God is the thing that led Joseph to forgive and to forget in this way. Folks, here's a great picture of Christ's ministry found in the life of Joseph. Our salvation in Christ is the product of God's forgiveness concerning our sins. The Lord says to Israel through Isaiah the following, Isaiah 43:24. He says, You have bought me, Not sweet cane with money, nor have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifices. Rather, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins, God says. He will not remember Israel's sins. Through the psalmist, he says this, Psalm 103.8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So the Lord's kindness to forget our sins brings about our reconciliation with him 
through the sacrifice of His Son. As Jesus bore the guilt of our sins, we now no longer need to bear the guilt of it ourselves. That's the essence of the Gospel, right? But what is our obligation to the Lord in response to His willingness to forgive us unconditionally? Joseph sees the kindness of God in his life, so in response, he turns to those who owe him something, and he forgets their sins. What does Jesus say to us? Matthew 5.43, reading from there onward in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So the expectation that the Lord places on His children is that we imitate the Father's perfection in the way He forgave others who offended Him. Joseph has an awful lot to hold against his brothers. Wouldn't you agree? In fact, can you say that anyone has injured you as much as Joseph's family injured him? I guess it's possible, but I doubt it's common. Nevertheless, Joseph was able to say, honestly that the Lord's kindness in his life has allowed him to forget his family's sins against him. And in that way, he becomes both a picture of Christ, in the way Christ forgives our sins, though we certainly didn't deserve that, but he also becomes a model for how we are to live as Christians according to Scripture. Can you honestly say that you have set the offenses of others that have come against you, you have set those aside. Can we honestly say that? Have we forgotten the offenses of others against us in the sense of forgiving? Because Scripture says we are called to forgive others according to the same manner in which the Father gave us forgiveness, which is a high standard. The Bible says we are to constantly reflect on how much sin we have so that we can be mindful of how much forgiveness we have received. And then, in reflecting on how much forgiveness we had to have because of how much sin we had, we then are going to be in the right state of mind and in the right heart to look upon others with a forgiving mindset. Because no matter what they do to us, they can't do enough to equal what we have done to offend God. But if God was able to forget that, then who are we to hold anything against anyone for what they may have done to us? That was the standard Jesus expected. He said, be perfect in this sense as your father is perfect. In Luke chapter 7, there's a moment in which Jesus is eating with a Pharisee and a prostitute comes up behind Jesus and starts washing Jesus' feet. And the Pharisee is laughing at Jesus, mocking Jesus, because he says if Jesus could only know the condition of this woman who he is allowed to touch, he would never have allowed her to do so. And Jesus starts to rebuke the Pharisee concerning his attitude of lack of forgiveness. And he says this at the end, 747, For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. For he who is forgiven little, loves little. 
Now, when a Christian lives with a judgmental attitude or a heart that struggles to forgive or struggles to forget others' sin, it means that that person has lost sight of how much Christ has forgiven them. As in the way Jesus taught, lack of forgiveness is almost always associated with self-righteousness. We think ourselves better than we are, and that allows us to feel justified in holding other people's feet to the fire for the sins they brought into our life. Jesus says, those who have been forgiven little will love little. Now, he's not saying that there are some people who have less sin to need forgiving. No, he's saying this in the sense that when someone thinks they have less sin to be covered, then they have some feeling of superiority that they turn into judgmentalism. If you know how much you've truly been forgiven, you'll never end up in a place where you can't show love to other sinners, where you can't give forgiveness to other people, because you'll constantly be thinking about your own state of indebtedness rather than their debt to you. And if there was ever a person who might have said, with a right to say it, that they could withhold forgiveness, it would have been Joseph. In fact, it would have been Christ. And in that way, he is a picture of Christ. Christ was sinless, yet he was terribly mistreated. And yet the Scripture says that even while we were still enemies with God, He put His life down for us. Have you heard Christians who will say, well, I can forgive, yes, but I can't forget. If that's a statement you rest on, you need to understand that statement is merely an excuse for not forgiving. Because the Bible uses the word forget when it describes people who forgive. God has forgotten our sins. He has separated them, it says, as far as the east is from the west. If you look on a globe, and you look at the cardinal directions on the globe, north, south, east, and west, north and south, they eventually meet. North and south meet at the poles. If you go north far enough, you eventually start going south. But east and west never meet. You keep going east forever, or west forever. That's the point, isn't it? As far as east is from the west, God will never bring you back to face your sin. For Jesus faced it for us. That's the call He's put on us for how we see others' sins against us. We forget them. Now what gave Joseph the power to release these sins against him? To forget them in the way he did? What gave him that capacity? Well, it's his understanding of God's sovereignty that did that. Joseph recognized that whatever injury came upon him from his brothers, that was something God intended. And as a result, he could not hold it against his brothers, for in doing so, he would be essentially holding it against God. How do I know this? Well, if I jump forward in the story from where we are today to chapter 50, the very last chapter in this book, When Joseph is confronting his brothers and they have learned of his true identity, here is what he says to them. Men who, as you might expect, were tremendously fearful of what was going to happen next to them as they stood in front of the most powerful man on earth, who they know they had sold into slavery. They had every reason to worry what he might do to them. And here's what he said. Verse 19 of chapter 50, Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am in God's place. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. 
Have you ever stopped to consider that the injuries you've suffered at the hands of other people were injuries God Himself inflicted through that person's sin? To understand that is to truly understand God's sovereignty in the lives of people. God is not the author of their sin. God is not pleased with their sin. But a holy and powerful God can certainly use that sin. And when He chooses to use it, He puts it to work in good purposes. And that God had some good purpose in mind for you is the key to appreciating how to forget and forgive someone else's sin. The sin of Joseph's brother became a vehicle to build up Joseph and preparing him to rule the world and ultimately feed the world, as as he just said. So who's to say how the Lord was working in some past day in your life to build you up, to build me up, by exposing us to the sin of someone else? Trial, persecution, these are some of the most powerful tools God has. And He wields them in love, and He can accomplish much through them. But when we experience them, however they come, the response we are to give, according to Scripture, is to be perfect like our Father in Heaven is perfect and to accept the trial, forget the sin, love the person. Turning to the second son, Joseph names him Ephraim. Well, Ephraim's name means doubly fruitful. So you have Joseph's Forgiving attitude made possible, we said, by the kindness of God. And here it is reflected in the name of his second son. A recognition that in his current circumstances, the Lord was more than making up for his brother's sin against him. Whatever has happened to Joseph in the past pales in comparison to what God is doing with him now. He has been restored well beyond what he lost. And he has been made content by God's goodness. And as a result, he can forget the past. That's another picture of God's work in Christ. When you and I have endured in this life all that God has planned and suffered in ways similar to what God put His own Son through, perhaps, then, after that, we can expect a reward. In Luke 6.35, Jesus says, Love your enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in return and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. So, our willingness to forgive others and to forget their sins is modeled on the experiences of Christ, which are then pictured in this story of Joseph. We forgive because the Father has forgiven us, and He has done so much more for us than He's asking us to do for others. It's the least that we can do in response. We understand it's His sovereign will that's always at work in all of these circumstances. So we accept what comes as from God. And then we rejoice in our injuries, whatever they are, because we know the Lord will reward us in heaven for our patience and our forgiving attitude. We don't seek our revenge and justice here, but we seek for God to reward. If we harbor resentment, if we fail to forgive others, who are we injuring? Well, according to Scripture, we're only injuring ourselves. First, we're losing reward, according to Scripture. Secondly, we're failing to live up to the standard the Lord established for us. Thirdly, we're overlooking the Lord's sovereignty in our life, shortchanging Him for His ability to turn all things to good, even the sins of others. In short, we are hurting ourselves in eternity, we are hurting our witness now, and we are doing damage to our ability to follow Him in faith because we are putting blinders on with regard to how he works. 
In fact, if we are the type to struggle in forgiving and forgetting the sins of others, wouldn't it make sense for God to bring into our life even more injuries from others' sin simply so that we have plenty of opportunities to practice how to forgive? Wouldn't that make sense? What do you do with a batter who's not particularly good at hitting fastball pitches? You throw a lot of fastball pitches at him while coaching him on how to get better. How do you, as the Lord, help a son or a daughter who is doing a poor job at forgiving the trespasses of others? You invite a whole bunch of people to trespass all over them. Wouldn't that make sense? Now, as a Christian, our response to that circumstance can either be a recognition of the sovereignty of God, the knowledge that he disciplines those who he loves, that he is in the business of growing us spiritually through trial, And in that mature attitude, we accept what comes and make the most of it. Or, we have pity parties, anger, or resentment, or disappointment, or discouragement result, and we attack those who attack us. We burn bridges. Which would we rather do as Christians? The answer should be obvious. So, After the times of plenty, the famine sets in. That's our next phase of chapter 41, verse 53. When the seven years of plenty, which had been in the land of Egypt, came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, then there was a famine in all the lands. But in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you should do. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. Right on cue, the famine the Lord promised appears. And as we just said, It's incredibly severe. Now, Egypt has long had a history of being the place of relief in times of stress, particularly in times of famine or drought, because the regular predictable flooding of the Nile River ensured that Egypt always had land that was irrigated and could be used for harvest. And so even when everyone else had nothing, Egypt usually had something. But here, this is different, we're told. Even Egypt, it says, is famished. Even Egypt is afflicted in the way the dream predicted. Therefore, the only reason Egypt has bread this time is not because of the Nile. It's because of Joseph's storage up of the grain. And at a point when the people's own storehouses, their own provisions ran out, they come to Pharaoh, their leader, their monarch, and they're begging him for help. But look what the Pharaoh does. He points them very wisely. He points them to Joseph. And this makes sense because, after all, he trusted Joseph with the first half of the plan. And that worked out amazingly well. So now that the second half is kicked in, he does the same thing again. He says, you know what? You need to go talk to that guy. He's in charge. Do what he tells you to do. And so Joseph implements the second half of the plan. He begins to open the storehouses, but he does it in a very particular way. We'll study more about this next week. But for now, we just note that he's opened them and he's selling the stock of grain both to Egypt and to the world, which is coming to Egypt for food because it's the only place they can find it. Now, here's another piece of evidence of God's sovereignty bringing difficulty upon the world when it suits his good purposes. 
You know, let's not whitewash the details on what's happening at this point in the story. These seven years of famine are incredibly severe. In fact, I would argue, based on what we know in Scripture, this is the most severe famine that's ever come upon the earth. It's the only one I know of that is said to be worldwide. And you can probably assume there are people dying all over the world as a result of this famine. Not everybody got to Egypt. Not everybody was able to get there and buy grain. There are people dying and suffering as a result of this famine. Its severity now has forced people to make radical changes in their life in order to find food, including going down to Egypt. So the question for us is, does our understanding of God and of his ways make room for this kind of work? Have you considered, for example, God's own words in Isaiah when he says in Isaiah 45, 6, Men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. You know, it's fashionable in the media every time there's some world disaster to trot out the old worn phrases of, How can a loving God, or is God still there? Does he still care? And it's natural in some respects for that thought to emerge out of any bad situation. And we can all understand where it comes from. But its very existence is proof of a lack of biblical understanding. And that itself is no surprise in our culture, right? But it should not be that way within the church. God works to produce good outcomes for his people. He's done it from the beginning. He'll do it until the end. He's doing it here for Israel, for the family of Jacob. And in this case, and in most cases, God's plan for good depends, at least in part, on bringing trial and tribulation upon the earth. In fact, in the last days of this age, the immense good that God is prepared to do comes in the form of immense tribulation on the earth. We're going to study more of that later in the story of Joseph. Meanwhile, do you see another picture of Christ forming in this current scenario, the one with Joseph selling grain to the nations? Well, Joseph pictures Christ, and in this case, he pictures Christ's power to draw the nations of the world to himself. Look, we're told that all Egypt and all the world begin to stream to Pharaoh. What are they coming for? Bread to sustain their very lives. But what does Pharaoh say? He says, if you want bread to save your life, you need to go to Joseph. I have appointed Joseph as the one to give you bread. You must go through him to find bread. Now remember, Pharaoh is the one in authority above Joseph. Joseph is the second in command. The the son of God being the second in the Godhead. And because of the famine that God brought upon the world... Now the world is compelled to seek for a solution, one that can only be found in Joseph. Jesus said this in John 6, 627, to the crowd. He said, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For, listen, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, well, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered them and said, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him who He has sent. So they said to Him, Well, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, 
as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven. It is my father who gives you the true bread of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. So Joseph is a picture of Christ in the way he offers bread of life to the world. Now here's where we come back to our conversation about how God works. In stress, in trials. Look at what's happening. The Lord is willing to bring a great stress and trial upon the world, if necessary, to bring the world to Christ. That's the picture. What is the aim of this life for every human being? What is definition of success in life? in the 80 plus years you might spend on this planet? What would be the ultimate definition of success? It's not money. It's not fame. It's not possessions. It's did you come to Christ? It's a binary answer. Yes or no. 100% success, 100% failure. And if God needs to use stress and trials and tribulations so as to cause the unbelieving world to stream to a Christ that they would otherwise never have an interest in, so that they may obtain the bread that only comes from the Father, so be it. As a man who has family who do not believe the gospel, I would love to see God bring trial and stress and tribulation and illness and heartache and financial ruin and whatever else he might imagine if the end result of it is they came to know Christ. Far better than that they live in luxury and happiness until they die and never know Him. That's what you see forming here in this picture through the famine, through Joseph handing out bread to the nations. In the case of Jesus, of course, that bread is a spiritual bread, the body of Christ. And in the coming weeks, we're going to see an even more remarkable picture forming of a future work that God is going to do in Israel through Christ which the story of Joseph begins to picture with his brothers. As Joseph draws his family back to himself through this famine and then reveals himself to them at a specific moment, according to a very specific plan, it will cause them to be restored to him. And in that you will find a beautiful picture of the end times that are yet to come, which we will study as we go. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, that you do work in so many ways with so much power and wisdom. And forgive us, Father, for our our inability to trust you at times in that plan, to look past the details of our life, to concern ourselves with our own misfortune, with the injuries that come upon us, and not to look past them as well and not to see your work in that way, not to learn, not to grow. We are all guilty, Father, of that in various ways. And we each have our weaknesses. But we know you have promised to grow us and to build us through trials. So we say here now this morning, Father, that we know the trials and the difficulties you bring us have been designed by you, according to your word, to grow us, to grow us spiritually. And so, Father, as we declare that in our hearts and we know that to be true, I pray that you would give us insight, wisdom, and courage to face those trials in a better way in the future. To see them as your loving hand growing us, not the world condemning us. To understand that as we respond, we have a choice and you would help us make the choice that grows us best. I thank you, Father, for this story of Joseph. How much work did you go in, did you 
take upon yourself. How much thought did you put into this, Father? We could never understand or know. But to see the picture play out in such detail, to see such a loving hand sculpting the details, we can understand you wanted to communicate to us about your Son. We thank you for that. Let this church continue to stand as a witness to your truth and to your word in this part of the city. Let us continue to preach and live according to it. Bring others to share it with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.